Welcome to Shit Your Teenagers Won't Tell You, a podcast about everything you need to know about teens. I'm Kathy. And I'm Meredith. And we speak teenager. Uh, did we also mention that we're best friends? We've worked as admission officers, prep school administrators, and most importantly, have coached thousands of teens. In other words, we have seen it all. So join us every week as we give you the lowdown on all the shit your teenager isn't telling you. Because trust us, there's a lot of it. And if you don't know what to do with the teenagers in your life, don't worry. We've got your back. Okay, Meredith. Yeah. Are you ready? Mm. For this one? <laughs> we have not been exactly looking forward to doing this episode, but it is an important episode because there's a lot happening right now in the world of college admissions. Yeah. Lots of news, lots of hullabaloo, lots of, I mean, shenanigans. But, you know, it's interesting because I wonder if, like, the outside world, because we live in this space, like, we feel it intensely in that there's been so much information, so much the professionals who work in admissions and work with teenagers, like, a lot of us are like, oh, what's going on? But I wonder if, like, the outside world feels that as intensely. I don't know. I think if you are a parent of children who might go to college one day, you might you might have your finger your on ear, the pulse. Yeah, you might have your ear to the ground mm-hmm. on some of the Supreme Court decisions. And if you're a political nerd like me and you listen to a lot of political podcasts, I guess you would know about it. You would yeah, you would know, know what's it. going on. But if you don't like reading Supreme Court briefs, like I do, <laughs> hey weirdo, <laughs> then, then you might not know about it. Mostly, I just like reading the dissent on these opinions because some of the good. some of the one liners in the dissents were pretty great. Well, what we're talking about, so you know, there's been a lot of changes in college admissions, right? We yeah. this whole test optional thing was yeah. the big hullabaloo for a while. Like, oh my god, what does that mean? I think yeah. we're more settled. And just as a side note, it's here to stay. I think test optional. More and more schools are becoming test optional, still happening. And so the big news this year was that, and folks in the admissions world expected this to happen, was that the Supreme Court was going to strike down affirmative action. Yeah. And that has created some kickback, right? Because now legacy admissions is on the chopping block. People are really talking about how that is also, that gives students an unfair advantage, right? The way that affirmative action that people feel Affirmative action gives students an unfair advantage. By the way, in this episode, (laughs) Meredith and I (laughs) are going to be very clear, in case we haven't in the past. In case you couldn't (laughs) surmise. (laughs) What our positions are, working with young people, having gone to graduate schools of education, and done a lot of research study yeah about education <laughs> and access like that was like when i went to harvard for grad school i'm not trying to speaking of elite colleges i did go to harvard for grad school yeah and i tell people all the time i said one of the main focuses of the graduate program that i went to was about equity inclusion in all yeah. You're overcomplicating Education spaces. We believe, I think it's safe to say, that the 
opinion and the decision rendered in the Supreme Court case is, how shall we say, bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We definitely don't agree with it. I mean, so first of all, you know, for those of you who are sort of, you know, I think it's important to define what is affirmative action in this context. And because now it's starting to, it's a phrase that's starting to be used outside of race. And affirmative action, of course, is sort of the use of race as part of a factor in an admission decision. And the Supreme Court in two different cases, basically said that that is using the 14th Amendment, which the irony abounds, and I'm going to explain why in a second, said that that's unlawful. And their rationale for that was something to the effect of that, you know, these schools had not sort of adequately proven that, you know, there was a, that an applicant's race alone says something meaningful about their lived experiences. Now we know that that is nonsense. If you actually examine research about there is quite a bit of not exclusively, obviously, people of color, not a monolith, but well, you have to believe that racism is real. That's you have to first believe that racism is real. Yeah, right. And is a real part of the history of this country. And that therefore, and is over time, it is correlated with things like income over a lifetime, wealth, access to all kinds of different resources, health benefit, health resources, educational resources, you know, you have to like, remember there was a civil war, you know, and you have to know what the 14th amendment was. <laughs> they used this amendment that was one of three amendments post-civil war to that those, that amendment was specifically designed to kind of undo the damage of sort of white supremacy before this. It was specifically about this idea that racism was a factor in why people post-Civil War, Black people post-Civil War were not accessing, like they still couldn't vote, right? Like weren't able to make in- income. Like they basically were still living in slavery, though the, you know, the slavery had technically been abolished in the 13th Amendment, right? So it's just like the fact that that's the justification for like an, the Supreme Court saying now race is no longer a meaningful factor in outcomes is bullshit. But the court also said in like, what can only, I think, be described as like, I get I'm getting a little fired up. Um, <laughs> like, just some pansy, weak-ass shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, it basically said, but it doesn't prevent colleges and universities from asking students, asking applicants about their backgrounds. And that part of the decision has, in a very, right, these decisions came out, I think, when? In July? Mm-hmm. And it's August. And so we have this whole crop of seniors applying to colleges. And what we're seeing is sort of the applications and the supplements have changed a lot. So this episode is about talking about not so much the Supreme Court decision, but this sort of belief that this opinion and others have rested on the folks who brought these cases forward had this sort of contention that you know, black and brown kids were somehow disproportionately taking up spots from well-deserving Asian and white kids, right? Yeah, that's the narrative that is that's out the there. Narrative. And that is a narrative that you and I have heard working as college counselors in independent schools. I have had families at sit elite, on my couch. At elite. At elite Predominantly schools, white. Schools that cost yeah. $50,000 a year. Easily. Now, 60000 plus. <laughs> yeah. And for day school. Let's be clear. Soundboarding. Yeah. So, Kathy, is it true that 
the most elite colleges are just bursting at the seams with historically marginalized ethnic and racial groups. Is that true? That would not be true, Meredith. <laughs> it is not. And it was interesting because we were looking at the study. Uh, a couple of Harvard researchers and a Brown researcher, economists came up with the study. And it's actually a really interesting study. Yeah. With really just fun, quote unquote, fun facts about who these elite institutions are serving. So they were really talking about Ivy Plus in this study. So that's all the Ivy League schools. Plus, I think it was Stanford, MIT, and Duke. That was what they included in their study. And it turns out that, what was it? The top wealthiest 1% in America. The richest 1% are two times more likely, right? Yes. To get into an elite school institution, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Then they're similarly prepared, like in terms of just academic right. scores and GPAs and academic rigor, like kids who look on paper similarly, right? They're from the middle class, right? They're twice as likely to get in. Right. If you're a kid of a family making less than $100,000 a year, Versus a kid from a family making more than, say, collectively $650,000 a year. And those two kids look exactly the same. In terms of numbers. In terms of academic profile. Yeah. Same kind of rigor of curriculum, same GPA, same testing scores. The kid whose parents make a lot of money is twice as likely, which is a significant amount of likely, to get into these elite colleges. And We need to remind ourselves that these are elite schools that admit, you know, 3.6%, 5.2%, 8% of the kids who apply. So twice as likely is incredibly impactful. Yeah. Incredibly impactful. And it's like, why are we sharing this information? I mean, we're sharing this information because we do hear the narrative a lot that pits like Asian kids against black and brown kids. Yeah. Right. Like... I don't think that's the conversation we should be having. And I mean, I guess the question is, do we care about it? Like, does it matter? Like, I wonder if there's families out there who are listening, who are like in the wealthiest 1%. And they're they're like, like, yes! <laughs> like fist bumping. <laughs> My kid has twice as much likely chance. Listen, of I think for me, I'm just going to like be blunt. Like, <laughs> you know, I've had a lot of conversations with families over the years, parents of white boys. Yes. Same. Oh, Yes. Or parents of white girls, because there is statistically, there are more female identifying students in college than male identifying. So parents of white girls, parents of white boys come to me and express anxiety and worry that somehow their well-prepared student is not going to be considered as seriously in the process. Like, listen, people, most Folks who attend these highly selective schools, this is not me and Kathy having bias here, like look at the demographic profiles of the student enrollment at places like Stanford, at places like Harvard, at places like Penn, are white. And it was interesting, another statistic that this study brought up was that they actually put percentages on the amount of advantage yeah. certain factors gave you. So going to a prep school gave you a 30% advantage of attending one of these right. elite schools. Right. And it's like, it wasn't enough to just, it's it's not that you went to a prep school, but 
Kids who go to prep schools get better letters of recommendation. They get more support in the college process. They don't miss deadlines because they're people like us us working on their essays. Right. Right. So there's tons of advantages, right? They tend to read. They're more quote unquote interesting, right? Their non-academic profile is more interesting because they've been able to have access to interesting opportunities and they have the resources to do independent projects that a kid who has to work, right? Right. To help support their family. They're not going to have free time to go research microbiomes in cement. Like that's just not like. Are there microbiomes in cement? turns out one of my kids is doing it. So. (laughs) Fun facts. He's actually doing it. But anyway, Very specific for a high schooler to be researching that. Okay. Yeah. And I think one of the other factors, and I'm grateful that, in one of the natural reactions to the Supreme Court case has been to understandably, and I think more than appropriately and long overdue, frankly, come um, to put a legacy admission under scrutiny. Because legacy admission offers, you know, if your parent or grandparent or some kind of person in your family, typically sibling, sibling, parent, grandparent, that's typically that's how legacy is measured, went to that college. Then this study that Kathy's referencing that study shows that that gives a student significant advantage. That's one of the factors in attending one of these elite schools. And I think they did some research around that too. And I think it was nearly 50% of these elite schools consider like seriously consider legacy as part of the admission process. Right. 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 And so a lot of the, if you really like are nerdy and you want to read some of the language in the Supreme court decision, as well as the dissents, you could kind of take your eraser and use a lot of the justification that they use to strike down race-based considerations in the admission process. And legacy is like far worse, far, far, far worse. And it's really perpetuating sort of a certain, I think the term we, they used in the article was like this neo-aristocracy, right? That is, Mm -hmm. you know, these are folks who will go on to sort of. And I think the people who benefit from that want that. Right. And so like, that's the reality of the situation is that colleges want it because it brings them dollars. That's huge. Right. It's development. It's their business model. Private colleges are tuition driven and donation driven. That's how they, they don't receive state and federal monies in the same way that like a University of Michigan, a Cal Berkeley, you know, these large flagship state public schools do. And it's interesting, they looked at the difference between these elite universities and in the study that we're referencing, and we'll put a link to it if you want to learn more about it, but they compared elite universities to elite public universities. Right, elite public universities, flagship public universities like Berkeley, UNC, Michigan. Michigan. That was the two that they, I saw that they referenced, but that you don't see the same thing happening at The flagship public universities, their admission process is much more based on academic criteria. It's cleaner. Yeah. There's less subjectivity in the admission process and there's more equity in the, you know, they're not using the same non-academic factors. Non-academic factors. They're not not putting as much weight potentially. Yeah. I think they still play a role. Standing out. Right. I think they're more interested in like how your background has affected, like they are interested in context. Mm -hmm. I think that's how I see it. Like when I 
coach kids around UC, it's definitely like they're interested in context. You should give them context about mm-hmm. your life, right? Mm-hmm. Versus I don't think the private elite private universities, I mean, context like is the important. the UC application doesn't ask you, does it ask you if your parents went to you? Went to a UC school? I, can't, I don't. I don't think it does. I don't think it does. I don't. You know, whereas on the common application, it does ask you. Educa- your educational background of parents is asked. Hmm. I don't think it does on the UCF. We're not sure. We're gonna have to double check. <laughs> don't We're go on that, that one. That. Yeah, exactly. I'm like literally mentally scrolling through the UC application in my head. <laughs> but anyways, the point being, why are we saying all of this? And I think it will change some things this year. Yeah, right? it already has. For it already sure. has. So we talked about the prompts changing, right? Like schools are still interested. Like, first of all, colleges are not all of a sudden going to stop caring about diversity and building a diverse class. That yeah, is let me, not going to thank, happen. That, thank you for making that point because I think it's important for folks who are not as plugged into the sort of college counseling and admission world as, as we are to recognize and know that everybody in our profession is pissed off about <laughs> these decisions. They nobody are, is being like, nobody oh, is like, oh, no, Harvard's not over there being like, oh, good. We can just keep admitting more elite, rich, whatever, you know, like, no, the profession. And I expect at some point there's going to be appeals, but the profession yeah. will actively and probably very aggressively be looking at ways to continue to consider a broad range of life experiences and factors, including race and historic marginalization as part of their admission process without hopefully breaking the law. Yes. And then there will be people who are like watchdogs who are like, oh, you did this thing. There's going to be all sorts of things coming up undoubtedly, but colleges are still going to find ways. I mean, the Biden administration came out with a whole plan, you know, like this Mm -hmm. is our guidelines to colleges. Like, here's what we think you can do to continue to focus your energy and effort and prioritize diversity, right? Ethnic diversity. Let's be racial and ethnic diversity in college admissions. And so colleges are not going away. Colleges are going to get more creative with it, right? As they are with the changing the prompts. Mm-hmm. On their supplemental essays. That's where we're seeing the most immediate boom. Colleges are ready to go. They were already prepared for this decision Correct. to come out. We all knew <laughs> that this was probably, all of us knew in the industry that this was given the constellation of the Supreme Court, that this was going to be the decision. So colleges have literally right. been working and high schools have been working on their response and their sort of moves. I mean, we were talking about this at yeah. our you know, over a year ago. At oh, easily NACAC, at NACAC. You know, it's and probably the last, the last couple of years. And the day the decisions came out, Harvard sent out an email right. to all of its alumni. And right. we're like, just so you know, we care about diversity. Right. It's not going away. We're not ch- changing direction. Our mission is still to enroll a diverse class of students. But I do so. think legacy will... increasingly be under scrutiny. Many schools, Carnegie Mellon, Wesleyan, have already eliminated it completely from their processes. And I think that more schools are going to head this way. I think the Ivies are going to have a hard time because, frankly, it's a financial boon to them to sort of keep their It is, but you know what? They're also like the richest Their endowments are fine. Yeah. (laughs) Totally fine. And the billions, right? But also, I think the study, I do want to get this factoid in. Oh, get it in. So the study, you know, looked at these factors, right? Legacy, athletics, and sort of, what did they call the third factor? It was sort of like the non... Oh, it was the non-academic factors. The non-academic factors, right? That if you 
And it showed that while it's true that if you have these factors, you know, your mom or dad went to Cornell and you're being recruited for a sport, which by the way, the sports included are sort of sports that are traditionally the province of the wealthy and the elite, things that are expensive, like equestrian, fencing, tennis, squash. <laughs> You've been really into squash. This is like the fourth time she's mentioned squash to me. Because are you really like around squash? I'm just saying because squash. The rich kids. That's it. But on the East Coast, does huh? anyone play squash on the West Coast? Yes. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, to get into to get into these right yeah. rowing. I mean, like we like these sports too. We're not being down on these sports. We're just. I don't like squash. No. <laughs> I don't know anything about squash. I'm sorry for all of you squash players who are listening. Um, but anyway, the study showed that those students, yes, they get that advantage in the admission process, but their outcomes, like their earning potential over time, their outcomes, not that significant compared to, they're not significantly better once they leave that college or university than students who frankly, maybe arguably had to earn their spot a little bit more. Oh, I see what you're saying. So basically, I thought you were going in a different direction with that. Okay. So that's why I'm like, oh, okay. So the kids who are using an advantage to get in, right? For example, legacy, legacy. admissions, like, but they're not particularly qualified, right, to get into these schools, but they're really using a hook. We use that word a mm-hmm. lot in admissions. Are you hooked? Like we, when we look at a list of kids who've gotten into ex elite college, we'll say of these 10 kids, eight of them were hooked. Right. And when we say hooked, we mean they were a development case slash legacy. Mm-hmm. Development cases oftentimes are legacy mm-hmm. or they were an athlete. Mm-hmm. Those were like the two big hooks. Those or they could be, hooks. or they could be like the best, you know, ballerina in the nation, like, or the super elite violinist. Distinguishing excellence. Right. Right. But that would have to be real significant. Right. They would have to be one of the best in the country. Right. In the country. In the country. Right. Right. So, which is also usually elite students coming from, well. Right. They've had all the training. They've been able to like have Have violin lessons since they were three for four hours a day. Right. All the things. Like those kids, if they're only getting in because of their hook. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. But they're not academically. They're really kind of borderline for the school or maybe just actually not particularly well. I think they said even if they're kind of the same, but like the main reason is because of this advantage. The main reason they got in was because of this advantage. Then they're less likely to see sort of outsized success as compared to, you know, middle class students who are admitted who don't have those other credentials, right? They're not the number one violinist. They don't have legacy. They're not an athletic recruit. So those middle-class kids who get in are more likely to, who are unhooked, are more likely to see significant success after graduating as compared to those super hooked kids. Right. And so, you know, if you have one of those super hooked kids, like it still matters who you are when you show up to college, right? So I tell kids this all the time and I won't stop telling kids this. Because kids will be like, can't we just, can't, isn't there something I can do? <laughs> like, can my parents make a phone call? Like, you know what I mean? Like, is there, can, can I be hooked? And I'm like, well, it's not enough to just be hooked to get in. Like, you have to actually, once you get there, you have to. You have to like be there and be successful and be able work. to hang and do the things that, and you have to hustle. And if, you know, I think there's a lot of like inferences that someone who's listening could make from what we're saying. But I think what I would want our audience to take away from what we're saying is, you know, 
Kathy and I talk a lot about values and this topic is to me is a comes back down to values. So let's say you're a family who's listening to this and you've got all the things we just mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. you're a legacy, your kid is hooked up one side and down the other, you know, it's not your child's fault that you went to an elite institution and now they are also interested in that institution. We're not like trying to foist guilt upon you for having that background. But I think it's important to really, we continue to sort of, I would encourage, and I think you would agree with me that when that is what drives decision-making around selection, like I'm working with, you know, some students who put the cart before the horse. It's all for them. Their entire process is about getting into a particular place instead of being at a place for four years. And so they want to use, I mean, how many times have you been in a conversation with a student who's like maybe a recruited athlete and they're like, well, I'm using rowing to get me into a good college. Absolutely. And so if that is the attitude that you have as a parent or that you notice your child has, I think I would just ask you to really reflect on that, you know, and be curious about why, you know, what is that really about? Why is it so important that they get into this school? What does that symbolize for us as a family? What values are we reinforcing with this attitude, with this posture? Are those the values we want to be reinforcing? Or are we just so panicked and anxious about this process that we are kind of mindlessly grabbing on to any potential advantage we can have because we exist in these spaces where the rhetoric around the process at elite schools is so scarcity oriented that we're just going to gobble up whatever kind of advantage we can, we can. And again, I don't want families to hear this as us saying, don't be thoughtful and considerate of the ways in which a student can be able to access a school that they're really excited about. But if it's all about that, if it's all about, like, if we truly, like, I cringe when students say sentences like, well, I'm just, I'm using music. It's like, oh, yes, I'm going to bring squash back into the conversation. (laughs) You're very. (laughs) I had a freshman come talk to me and was like, oh, I'm just going to use squash to get in. And I I swear to God, I'm playing squash. That's it. That's my strategy. Well, Well, everybody knows that works. And I was like, oh, everybody, huh? Huh. That's interesting. <laughs> and, you know. And no it, shame, you know? Like, right, no shame like, in I the think, game. And I, I, I'm not trying to shame children. like, But, like, think about all of the series of conversations and thoughts that that child had to have to be able to be so brazen in telling you that. Yes. That they have no... A lot of times when students give us those kinds of sentences, they have no awareness of how they come across. And the problem with that is that that's a tell in the admission process. First of all, if we're talking about athletics, yeah, coaches, you know, unless you're a D1 athlete getting a letter a sophomore year for like UCLA or USC football or that kind of thing, like there are no guarantees in athletic admissions. <laughs> coaches will pull the rug out from under you in the 11th hour. They sure will. It happen all the time. Yep. So, oh, sorry, you didn't make the list. Sorry, you weren't. Oh, we had a new player come in yep. that fits yep. that position better. Yep. It's October of senior year. Sorry. sorry. And especially at D3 schools or NESCAC mm-hmm. schools, like these less elite athletic programs, it's mm-hmm, good luck with that. <laughs> anyway, squash. Yeah. And so we, we had this conversation, you know, and I was like, so. How do you think, you know, this was just like a fresh exploratory meeting. Like, would we be the right, you know, would I be the right kind of coach for 
this child. And I was like, well, a lot of the work that we do is helping you become, you know, the best version of yourself, help you really think about your values, how you use your strengths to improve the world around you, what ideas interest you, what kind of problems are you interested in solving? And their response was just, "Um, I just want to play squash and I just want to get into an Ivy League school with squash. And I was like, okay. (laughs) Well, well, probably not the right coach for you because you just want to use squash. I mean, I don't want to belabor the point. I'm simply saying, I think that, you know, there are several reasons to bring up this episode. And this one of the reasons was to give you an update on the landscape yeah. to tell you kind of what some of the practical outcomes, how that might actually affect you if you have a child in the process right now. Yeah. But also, you know, to hopefully inspire some deeper thinking about what's yeah. happening versus like, you know, how does this affect my kid? Right. Like, what does this actually mean for the world that we live in? What are we actually teaching our kids when we hyper value getting into elite colleges, when we will pull any stops to make it happen? Right. Like we are village, Meredith and I, as just human beings, like there are people out there who would do that. But just like we could never do that. It would just feel so wrong to coach kids on pure strategy. Like, here, let me tell you what the strategy is. The strategy is X, Y, Z. Can you share more about, apart from our our own sort of personal ethics, Yeah. can you share more about why you don't think coaching like that is a good idea? (laughs) Your face just scared me right now. (laughs) You gave me that serious, like, "Mm." (laughs) I was like, oh, I'm scared. (laughs) Both give me her scary face. <laughs> well, I just think it's important. Like, I, there's a reason. I think I know what you're going to say. You do? I think so. I don't even know what I'm going to say. Well, I mean, why would I not coach a kid purely based on strategy? Yes. And, like, apart from your personal sort of values and morals telling you that that's not a thing that you, Well, Kathy, it's bad for kids, right? And why is it bad for it's kids? It's bad for kids because... That's what I was hoping you would right, say. Right. Because at the end of the day, like, we do what we do... Because we want kids to feel purposeful. We want them to feel good about themselves. We want them to move through life being like, you know what? I'm a good person and I do good things. Yeah. (laughs) I'm good at stuff. Yeah. I can help the world be a better place, right? Even in my small whatever, small ways, right? And at the end of the day, I think that's ultimately what parents want for their kids too. For sure. Right? But we lose that. We lose our way. Because we're hyper... I think it's so easy to get nearsighted in late stages of high school around this process and lose sight of... There's a lot of like... I see this from parents a lot, sort of this procrastination of wellness. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like, we'll focus on... like Once they get there, they'll become like a person who considers values. And like once they get there, then everything's going to be fine. And, you know, I really hope that folks can listen to what you just said about it being bad for kids because Kathy and I have seen it, you know, like it's not just that we've read, first of all, there's lots of research about the ingredients of happiness. And one of the biggest pieces of happiness is purpose and being sort of in service of, of causes or people larger than self. So if your entire formative experience and, you know, birth to say mid twenties has been about the accumulation of self accolades, often those folks turn into adults who struggle with relationships, connections. There's all kinds of research to support that, right? So if Mm -hmm. we're thinking, if we're playing the long game, 
then it becomes important, I think, to think beyond where your kid gets into college. That can be certainly a factor, but like make that one piece of the puzzle. Yes. When we were recording yesterday, we were mixing a lot of metaphors. One spoke on the wheel, one piece on the puzzle. (laughs) But the other piece is like when you actually have worked with children the way that Kathy and I have, and like you see the kid who spent all of their high school career, like pursuing a set of activities or classes that mean nothing to them. And they are white knuckling, forcing themselves to do it just in the name of college. And they get into that college and then they are miserable when they get there or they have a mental health crisis when they get there. Or before they get there. And often before they get there Mm -hmm. because adolescents can't keep that up for four years of high school. And so usually they crash and burn starting junior year, starting senior year. It's just, it's not pretty. Like it's not, and I'm not saying this is like the outcome for all students who do this, obviously, but you're borrowing trouble. Agreed. You know, it's just not good for kids. And it's like sad to watch. Mm -hmm. And you know what is good for kids? Uh, Diversity, turns out. Diversity equals excellence. I love that your eyeballs just did that. This episode. I'm so glad this is the first episode we're recording today. But diverse spaces are really important. So give back to our original topic. (laughs) Diverse spaces are so good for kids. It really, it's just good for humans. Not all people like, yeah. Oh, I mean, that's a whole other episode about the research around sort of heterogeneous spaces being good for development. First of all, professionally, you're going to, you know, problem solving, right? You need more perspective and different life experiences, different backgrounds make us better at solving problems. They make us more curious and interesting people to create to. Mm -hmm. We become more creative when we're surrounded by diversity, like more empathetic. All All of the the things. things. All of the things. So this is why universities and universities, it's not pushing a liberal agenda. Universities have done tons of research about why this diverse spaces are important. Because universities and colleges are in the business of educating young people and a good education is a diverse one. Yes. Hard stop. Boom. Boom. Mic drop. Okay. Well, that's our episode. I know we, you know, meandered here and there, but you know, I hope you can tell how passionately Meredith and I feel about that. I know we feel passionately about the topic. I think a lot of people in our profession feel unsettled by the Supreme Court ruling and are really trying to figure out. Yeah. It's quite troubling. And people are scrambling and trying to figure out like, what are the next steps? Right. And so, you know, listen, if I don't know if heard our season three preview, but we are going to bring on mm-hmm. a lot of admission folks who work in senior positions at highly selective colleges who are really wrestling with this question. And so Marith and I, I don't think we claim to be experts on affirmative action, no. but we are bringing some people who I think are. So who really, who are real experts yep, from who U- have USC to. and UCLA and Cornell. Yep. And the UCs have been dealing with this for a long time. So well, position in California. Yeah. Yeah. And so Gary's going to come talk about that. So tune in because we have more. If this topic interests you, you'd like to hear from some folks who are actually figuring out policies around how to manage this, like tune in. Check it out. Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks, y'all. See you next time.